This is Molly Hemingway of The Federalist. Join me, my husband Mark of Real Clear Investigations, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod President Matt Harrison, and others for the 2023 Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th, and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Making the Case, June 16th and 17th in Chicago. Issuesetc.org. I think the new ethic is founded on the volatile and non-transferable platform of human emotion. It's purely visceral feelings and sentiment, which are themselves inscrutable. The problem with CRT is that it has the same problem that the white nationalists do. Just define everybody by their race and not who they are as an individual. Where you have the white nationalists doing this and you have the critical race theorists doing this, they're just doing it in different directions. But given the challenges that black families face specifically, I don't think it's too much to ask for the leading civil rights organizations to talk more about the importance of the black family than they do about the importance of Planned Parenthood's agenda. And the only way he can justly forgive is by paying the price for those sins himself. And so this is the way humanity can find meaning and purpose and know right from wrong. And that truth's only found within scripture. Young Lutherans ages four and six learn the evening prayer from listening to Issues Etc. I thank you, my heavenly father, through Jesus Christ, your dear son, that you Political lessons are often difficult to learn. There's an opportunity here for the Republican Party to seize upon an issue and to clearly distinguish itself from the Democratic Party and not only do that, take some political advantage, which is nice, but also do the right thing. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Friday afternoon, March the 3rd. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to talk about the Republican Party and children's rights with Katie Faust of Them Before Us. We'll spend some time with Pastor John Ferguson, author of the book, The Sword and the Mask, Building an Anti-Fragile Approach to Spiritual Warfare. We'll discuss witchcraft. Then we'll wrap up today's show with an Issues Etc. Encore. We'll study a hymn that many of us will be singing this Sunday, Lord Thee I Love With All My Heart. Our guest will be the sainted Paul McCain. Katie Faust is founder and director of the children's rights organization, Them Before Us. She's co-author of the book, also called Them Before Us, and a recent column for Newsweek titled How the GOP Can Become the Pro-Child Party. Katie, welcome back. Hi, Todd. So good to be with you again. Why aren't you pitching this idea to the Democratic Party? Well, wouldn't it be nice if they were open to it? But to me, it seems that the one thing that probably characterizes the Democratic Party the most is child victimization. I advocate for children's rights in the family. I'm certainly pro-life. I'm very closely following all of the, quote unquote, progress being made on the transgender front. And the Democrats are consistently on the wrong side of all of these issues. They are always on the side of child victimization. And so, unfortunately, at this moment in our political landscape, there's only one party that seems to have the foundation and hopefully the courage to prioritize kids, and that's the Republicans. Talk about how an adult-first attitude just pervades our society. Well, I think that we thought the most starkly in the pandemic, children were at virtually no risk for COVID, and yet it was their lives that were most disrupted 
by all of the lockdown and interventions that we had across the country. And they are still suffering, especially the most marginalized children, the poorest, the ones that were already behind academically. Our adult-centric COVID policy ravaged a generation of kids. Some of them won't get back what they have lost. And that was just the most recent example, maybe the most widely known example. But this adult-centric mindset really governs all of the issues that we are talking about in the culture war. And the only way that that's possible is because kids can't advocate for themselves. Kids don't have a voice. They don't lobby. They can't write amicus briefs. They can't submit op-eds to the Federalist or to Newsweek. And so we have got to advocate on their behalf. What brought parents to school board meetings and to polls over the last several years? What activated so many parents regarding their kids? Well, I think that a lot of us have watched the crazy that's taken place in the culture. And a lot of us, maybe because we don't have the time, we don't have the political will, we've just kind of watched and said, oh, look at that crazy world. But it's when the crazy comes for the kids. That, to me, is the moment where you radicalize in the right way parents and generally adults to say, look, you have gone too far. I understand if you, as an adult, wants to transition to the opposite sex. I don't think it's a good idea, but I'm not going to stand in front of you. I'm not going to get in your way. But it's when you start explaining the gender unicorn to kindergartners and encouraging them to pursue a course of treatment that would surgically and chemically sterilize them, that's when people get off the couch and start getting right in the faces of adults who are victimizing kids. So to me, there's a lot of power in this child-centric message. Explain why the protection of children's rights is a political winner for the Republican Party. Yeah, so, so to me, this is the nexus. Like, this is the intersection of all of the different issues that people tend to care about. And it frames it in a way that helps people understand and articulate what they're for versus what they are against. So I find that, like I said, a lot of adults will say, well, I don't think that adults should be viewing pornography, but it's their choice. But once you start putting pornographic books in middle school libraries, that's where people want to stand up and say, I don't think so. People will say, well, I'm not going to regulate what goes on in your bedroom. But once you get to the point where your sexual decisions might cost a child their right to life, that's where we say, wait, no more. And so this child-centric approach really takes all the different culture war issues and looks at it through the lens of children's rights and protecting children. So to me, I actually think that all the culture war issues run through the rights of the child. You say that uh, the first child first principle is life. What do you mean by that, Katie? Well, life is the primary natural right that all of us share. I mean, it's listed first in the Constitution for a reason. Without defending our right to life, there's no other rights that you can even talk about. And so we have done a good job, I think, in this country understanding the threat that abortion levels against the child's right to life. And I think that we've built a pretty strong pro-life campaign on that. We need to stand strong. We need to continue to fight for that, even with Dobbs being overturned. We need to create a pro-life ethic and continue to uphold pro-life laws. But in the article, I also talk about how the abortion world is not the only place where children's right to life is being threatened. On the other side of, you know, that's the baby-taking industry. But the baby-making industry, big fertility, IVF, 
in terms of the raw numbers, big fertility victimizes more embryonic life per year than the abortion industry does. And so the Republican Party needs to be staunchly pro-life, and we need to defend all life, not just the babies who are unwanted, but the babies who are supposedly very, very wanted and thus created through these artificial reproductive technologies. Unfortunately, only 7% of those children will be born alive. Most of them will have the right to life violated. So it's an opportunity for the Republican Party to really protect child rights in all these different areas in terms of their right to life. What about a child's right to be raised by his or her biological mother and father? Well, this is critical. This is the second right. <laughs> like, once you can protect a child's right to life, you must protect the right to the two people responsible for giving them life. And statistically, those two adults give children things that no other adults give them. Number one, statistically, the home where they're most likely to be safe and loved. Two, their biological identity that helps them answer the question, who am I? And three, the gender complementarity that maximizes child development. And so the GOP needs to not think that they can compromise on the definition of marriage. They need to, in fact, double down and reaffirm their support for traditional marriage because there will be no child thriving without it. So that is one place where I'm concerned that the GOP is going to get a little wobbly need. So we need to make sure that we defend children's right to their mother and father. How does adoption fit into that principle? Well, we need to think about adoption from the perspective of this is an institution centered around the well-being of children. Children who have lost their mother and father, what do they need? They still need a mother and a father. And too often we have said that adoption exists to give kids to adults versus adoption existing to give parents to children who have lost them. So adopting children deserve to have placements prioritized that will allow them to receive the maternal and paternal love that they crave and that will maximize their development. So adoption needs to consider mothers and fathers in that calculation. Conversely, our reproductive technology marketplace routinely severs a child's relationship with either their mother or father or both. And the GOP and all responsible adults needs to stand against that. The third uh, child first principle that you write about is protecting bodies. What does that mean? Well, children's bodies are under assault in so many different ways. Primarily today, the most graphic example is the so-called treatments that gender-confused children are given, often at very young ages. These are treatments that block puberty. They receive cross-sex hormones. Sometimes they receive, quote-unquote, surgery, which is really just mutilation, surgical mutilation of their healthy functioning body parts, children have a right to reach adulthood with an unmedicalized body. And these interventions, actually, they don't transform a boy into a girl. They transform healthy children into lifelong medical patients. Children's bodies also need things like sports. They need to be able to participate in fair play. Their bodies deserve to be protected in the locker room or the bathroom or the changing room at Target. And so their bodies are largely under assault by all manner of transgender policies. So when we blur the lines between male and female, very often children are the victims. And we see that very clearly when it comes to violating children's right to an intact body. 
Why do children need the protection of their minds? Well, you know, we get so many things about children wrong, but children are not miniature adults, right? Children's minds need to be protected. They need to be exposed to challenging, difficult, graphic, troublesome content only in very carefully and at age-appropriate ways. And when children are exposed too soon to graphic content or sexual content, it actually has a traumatic effect on them. And so a lot of what we're doing now, things like drag queen story hours or um, graphic content that is being passed off as sex ed, really that is violating their innocence. It harms their development. Children should be shielded, especially in those early elementary school years, from this kind of content that violates their innocence and actually can have a traumatic impact on them. So we need to get very serious about returning the conversation around sex and gender to parents, because those are the adults who are the most connected to, invested in, protective of their children. They know their child best. They know what their children need to hear and when. And it is parents who need to be talking to their kids about these topics and these questions, not schools. How can Republicans flip the script on the Democratic Party's agenda to undermine marriage and family and childhood innocence? In short, like literally do the opposite. Like if the Democrats are doing it, do the reverse and you will probably protect kids, right? The Democrats are promoting not just safe, legal, rare abortions, but shout your abortions. You know, Democrats are not, I don't even know if Democrats any Democrat today would say kids should have a mom and dad. They are promoting modern families, which is code for child loss. Modern family simply means that the child had to lose their mother or father to be in that family, right? They are not protecting children's bodies. They are saying children have a right to cross sex hormones and body mutilating surgeries, right? That children have a right to sexual pleasure. And so we need to give them sexual content at early and earlier ages. So the GOP, the good news is this is not hard. This is not hard. All you have to do is stand clearly and firmly on the goodness and the importance of child rights. And you will reveal the stark contrast between the two parties. Do you see this happening already? Do you see, at least in certain states, the the GOP catching on that this is not only a political winner, but this is something, as I said before, it's the right thing to do for children. Yeah, it's the right thing to do. And this is what is energizing, not just parents, but I know people who are childless or who are grandparents who say, not on my watch, not on my watch. Are you kidding me? You guys are insane. Don't do this to kids. So yes, I think especially on the transgender front, we are starting to see some courage on behalf of the GOP. We need to take that approach and we need to look at all different child rights that need to be protected because we can have the same kind of victories, the same kind of power when we advocate on behalf of kids. Talk about how this approach where you frame things in terms of children first, it transcends ethnicity, sex, it transcends economic standing, educational level. Yeah. So like this child first approach, it allows all of us to have the same focal point, right? And the beauty of this is so often conservatives or the GOP, they are framed as being anti, anti anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-whatever adult 
is identifying in whatever way. And very often that tactic is effective, right? And it kind of pushes us into silence because nobody wants to be anti-anybody. This approach allows you to be pro-child. We are not against certain adults. We are not against different groups. We are for children. And that is the kind of framing that we need to use for these conversations because it helps embolden people. It gives them language to use. And this is the seamless garment of child protection. If you can say, look, we are pro-child. And really, you can take that approach of don't make kids sacrifice for you, adults. And you can lay that over the top of any culture war battle and come up with the right policy conclusion. If a kid is sacrificing for an adult or if a kid is sacrificing for a particular ideology, the answer is no. So it's a simple template that everybody can use and everybody can employ to look at all of these culture war issues. Why do you think there are many Republicans, lawmakers, who can't see this, who don't understand how simple this approach is to all the issues that they want to be able to affect change on? Well, I think that many of them, like many of us, look at this not just from the perspective of the child. They're looking at it from a religious perspective or a policy, you know, oh, this is going to be what, you know, plays best to my constituents, or um, maybe they're looking at them as separate issues. Well, the issue of marriage is different from the issue of, like, pornography, and yeah, there's differences in all of those, but there is one thing that they all hold in common, right? And that is you can either uphold children's rights in each of those issues, or you can violate the rights of children in each of those issues. And so there are a lot of adult considerations. There are a lot of adult emotions. There's adult stakeholders in all of these conversations. I think that you should be able to sort of evaluate and look at what adults are saying and doing, but none of that should govern the policy response. All of this should center around protecting the most vulnerable, which is kids. So I think once people hear this, well, I know when I've talked with people about it, once you hear this, it clicks. And you go, ah, of course, this is the right way to think about it. So that's what I'm hoping the op-ed does. I'm hoping the op-ed gets into the right hands so that we can start to communicate more effectively on all of these topics and protect the kids that desperately need our protection. Does a child-first platform, if this were something that the Republicans would actually take up, would it still permit adult freedom? Well, that's the incredible thing is... It really doesn't say anything about adult choices until it intersects with the rights of kids. It allows adults to make the choices that they want around reproduction, building a family, engaging in consensual relationships, making their own decisions about their own behavior, but it creates a firewall of child protection. It creates a no-go zone. For once adult choices or adult behavior starts to infringe on the rights of children, violate their innocence, violate their right to life, violate their right to a mother and father, violate their bodily integrity, that is where all of us stand up together, shoulder to shoulder, and say, no, no, you will not make a child do hard things for you. You do hard things for the kid. It's not policing adult behavior unless the adult behavior infringes on the rights of the child. Katie Faust is founder and director of the Children's Rights Organization, Them Before Us. She's co-author of the book, also called Them Before Us, and a recent column for Newsweek titled How the GOP Can Become the Pro-Child Party. You'll find a link to Them Before Us at our website, 
issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Katie, thank you, and keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Todd. When we come back, we'll be spending some time with Dr. John Ferguson. Our conversation will center on witchcraft. He's author of the book, The Sword in the Mask, Building an Anti-Fragile Approach to Spiritual Warfare. Stay tuned. Speaking the truth to power, the Lutheran option, cancel culture, media bias, a dying man's consolation. Some of your favorite guests will address these topics at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Making the Case June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's life ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministry sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email lifeministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org slash life. Where Christianity meets culture, you're listening to Issues Etc. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House. Listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House. cph.org. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. When I say witchcraft, you think of maybe a character from one of Shakespeare's plays. Maybe you think of, well, Harry Potter. You might think of TV series or other entertainment that have been either crafted around or include the idea of witchcraft. And it's entertaining. It's a plot device that moves things along. And it's all good fun. But is witchcraft real? And if it is, what is it and what are its dangers? Why does the Old Testament explicitly forbid the use of any kind of witchcraft? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about witchcraft, Dr. John Ferguson. He's pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in St. Louis, author of the book, The Sword and the Mask, Building an Anti-Fragile Approach to Spiritual Warfare. 
and a recent column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled On Witchcraft, A Growing Spiritual Trend. John, welcome back. It's good to be back, Todd. Thanks for having me. Pop culture depictions of witchcraft, such as, I'm dating myself here, Bewitched, a little more recently Charmed, or Harry Potter books and films, they focus on the humor or the adventure that uh, no one really is expected to take seriously. How would you correct that depiction of real witchcraft? Well, I suppose one of the first things to consider is that those depictions are fiction, right? I mean, they're idealized concepts for a narrative for entertaining purposes. So they highlight ideas from witchcraft that serve the purposes of the story or what people think of when they think of witchcraft. So, I mean, even in the few pieces you mentioned there, there's a difference in the kinds of things they're pulling from. So like in Harry Potter, for example, the version of witchcraft there is like kind of more like Lord of the Rings or like Big Trouble in Little China, where the spells there kind of serve the story. And when we hear them speak a spell, it's just, I don't know, like a magic word, but it's really just kind of bad Latin. And then they kind of switch their wand and then it moves the story along. And most of it's just nonsense. So the closest Harry Potter kind of gets to it is it's mostly just this kind of silly, childish fantasy version of what we would consider to be magic. The closest Harry Potter really gets to it is when they have a divination and they're supposed to be like reading tea leaves and stuff. But even there in the books, the characters admit that it's pretty much just nonsense. So in a book that talks about witchcraft and wizardry, the one thing where they kind of touch on something that sounds kind of like what we actually consider witchcraft, they actually say is nonsense. So that's kind of good. And if there's any ritual at all in Harry Potter, it's usually done by the bad guys, by the Death Eaters. But like the other ones, and Bewitched, Bewitched is goofy and silly. You know, she wriggles her nose and hijinks commence. But in contrast, you also mentioned Charmed, and I think there's a remake of that right now too. And that's a little tougher. That one involves things like spirit boards and communication with spirits via seance, rituals that went much closer to the ideas behind the different strains of witchcraft. And so that one is a little more than moving away from the silly frivolity of the idea of magic in the world and that kind of high fantasy stuff that you even see in like Narnia, but then moving away from that into something that is much closer to what we run into actually in witchcraft today. And so that one becomes a little closer to home when it comes to, is this more like what it is? Now, of course, that one still gets very fantasy oriented in the results of those things for the most part, but some of it gets pretty close to the concerns that we would have with people paying too much attention to those kinds of shows and the kinds of things they're doing there. So where we see a lot of this going on right now, though, if you're talking about the media, entertainment media, is where it is kind of subversive if we're not paying attention is the reality shows around ghost hunting and the paranormal. So not all of them go there. I'm not saying that no one can watch a ghost hunting show, but most of them have a decidedly non-Christian understanding of the afterlife, first of all. And so they're trying to talk to people that are dead when we have a clear understanding as Christians that they are not wandering the earth. Even though Charles Dickens used that in Christmas Carol, that is not what's happening. Some of them use seances uh, in those ghost hunting shows. They use seances and spells to contact the unseen beings in a place. Or, or if there's a problem in a place and they ask people to come and detect the supernatural there, uh, at the end, the people in the show might recommend the use of witchcraft to create barriers against evil entities. So I'm just throwing a whole bunch of things at your question here. But for the Christian, we have to 
really learn to discern between kind of fantasy fun and where these things turn into entry points and connection to witchcraft that can draw us kind of uncritically toward those viewpoints. Where would our listeners have come across witchcraft or related ideas in their everyday lives? Well, obviously, again, in a lot of the media today, online when people are on TikTok uh, and other places, they'll find messages about where influencers talk about things like manifesting, for example, or if they just think about something hard enough with enough energy, you know, that positive energy is sent out into the universe and then manifests itself into what they want in their lives. And that's really a part of, stems from witchcraft and the concepts of the New Age movement and Rhonda Byrne and Eckhart Tolle and those guys. Oprah talks about that stuff or has in the past anyway. So they'll hear things like that. Uh, We hear a version of that in a kind of what we would say is a heretical arm of Christianity and the idea of prosperity preaching, that if you just have enough faith, it'll God will divine vending machine give you stuff. And this is more of a moving it away from a, from a God to just like the universe uncritically or nature itself. Um, But this move that, that we have the power to do this. So you'll hear that kind of, discussion, and that has roots in witchcraft. Some of the naturalistic and holistic groups, not all of them, but some of them, you know, use things like the vibration of various crystals or the burning of incense, use of essential oils in a way that has a supernatural effect on your relationships or your situations. I'm not saying that you can't have aromatherapy, but that idea that somehow these things can actually have by having them located around you or on you will have a material effect on how the universe interacts with you or how people interact with you because you've created some kind of mystical barrier or something. That's a problem. And so we still have a lot of superstitions we use around today. So you do run into a lot of this stuff just in some of those conceptual frameworks to the point where even just a few years ago that garage sale mystery series on Hallmark, one of the main characters was into crystals and putting them on different things to try to manifest goodness in her life or something. But we also see it increasing in the media right now, too. The reconstituted Church of Satan, of course, has been pushing itself out there the last few years. We see Sam Smith at the Music Awards dressed as Satan. Uh, you see a pro-abortion statue put up on the New York City courthouse depicting basically Justice Ginsburg with ram's horns. So there's a media-oriented concept here as well, and some kind of move toward looking at pagan roots for answers to things today. But there's an interest in going back to witchcraft that we haven't seen in this way much since probably early pre-modern time. How do you explain the rising interest in witchcraft? Why is this particular time in Western civilization kind of ripe for its reemergence. Yeah, okay. So yeah, just following right on there. The move that we're we're seeing, I think, stems from this kind of a couple of flows of thought here. The first is that during modernism we pushed away organized religion as being suspicious. So the culture starts shying away from the idea that Christianity has answers or that organized religions in general are being honest and are being forthright and that they have the answers to the world's issues and the people's problems. And so we move away in modernism and we kind of push towards science and the idea of objective reality and that this kind of subjective and supernatural and and metaphysical is all bunk. 
But then what we find is in postmodern generations here, the last couple of generations, we've been moving away from this idea of trust in science and trust in objectivity to the idea that there's really no way to do that. And, and so we flipped it all the way over to subjectivity, where now they're skeptical of this idea that there is some kind of capital R reality and capital T truth and everyone's belief is their own. So what happens is you've lost the idea of organized religion and established truths for metaphysical answers. And then you move away from the objectivity concept of modernism, and you're left with this idea of, well, I am arbiter of my own truth, but I, I shy away from organized religion and I shy away from science. So I'm recognizing that science doesn't have all the answers. And so there's some kind of supernatural reference here that I need to make connection to or make try to figure out how to reference within my own experience. And so I'm just going to start grabbing onto whatever I want. And really witchcraft has that appeal because it's very personalized in the way that it's depicted. Everyone has their own version of, of things that they're going to end up creating for themselves as they pursue witchcraft, their own understanding of how the universe works, their own understanding of their communion with nature, their own understanding of the kinds of spells and the kinds of aspects of witchcraft that are available out there that they want to individualize into their own. And so you have this kind of have it your way mentality that's a part of the understanding of witchcraft that's been there since it started rising again, even back in the 70s. Dr. John Ferguson is our guest, author of the book, The Sword and the Mask, Building an Anti-Fragile Approach to Spiritual Warfare. We're talking about witchcraft, and we'll get into, as diverse as it is, the core beliefs and practices of witchcraft next. Got a black magic woman. I've got a black magic woman. Got me so blind I can't see. That she's a black magic woman. She's trying to make a devil Issues Etc. listeners are needed to vote for president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has the right to vote through a pastoral and a lay voter, two voters per congregation or parish. Voter registration must be completed by midnight central on March 19th of 2023. Request to be a voter at your congregation for president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio is a downtown church with members from over 40 cities around Columbus. Our attendees receive God's gifts in word and sacrament through the use of the historic liturgy, lectionary, and hymns. The Divine Service with Communion is celebrated every Sunday at 8 and 10.30 and also Wednesdays at 7. Learn more at zionlcms.org. That's zionlcms.org. Have you heard of the nuns? 
I'm not talking about Roman Catholic women who wear habits. Rather, I'm talking about those who mark none on religious preference surveys. It is the fastest growing religious group in the United States, and it's something we need to pay attention to. The March issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up this question regarding where they come from, what they believe, and how we can point them to Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of their sins. To learn more, pick up your copy of The Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. Is it hard? Yes. Will it challenge you? Absolutely. Is it a blessing from God for you and those you will serve without question? Dr. Lawrence Rast, President of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. The pastoral ministry is all of these things, and that's why Concordia Theological Seminary exists to form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Men from all over the world with a variety of unique backgrounds come to our campus to receive faithful training that will equip them for the challenging but blessed work of serving as pastors in Christ's church. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Christ-Centered Worship, Confessional Theology, Lutheran Community, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. John Ferguson is our guest. We're talking about witchcraft. You said before that the beliefs and practices are sometimes kind of make it up as you go along, but are there core beliefs and practices in witchcraft? There are some kind of general categorical things that you can connect it to. One is that there is a overall belief in the supernatural that, that they do believe that there are unseen beings out there. They vary in how they describe those. Most of them believe that when people die, they're some kind of, they don't just go to heaven or go to hell, like we would say in Christianity, but rather they're either roaming the earth or in some ways the people who have died before us still can influence the things that are going on on the earth. So they have this this notion that they have to deal with those entities as beings. And so that leads to a lot of that trying to connect to the dead because they're still around us somehow, even though we can't connect to them, is the idea. And most of your groups of witchcraft believe that on some level that's the case, as well as that there's other entities out there, because they're able to grab onto most religions. So you'll talk to them, they'll talk about demons, they'll talk about angels, they'll talk about various kinds of weird manifestations of spiritual beings around us, or they'll talk about it in an animistic way, that there's the spirit that lives in the tree, or the evil spirits that are angry that the early American settlers destroyed indigenous people or all these kinds of things. But you have this understanding that there's a supernatural realm that we can't see, but there are methods by which you can get access. And so then the methodologies by which you access that and harness the power that's latent there in that supernatural connection, that kind of provides the different flavors for witchcraft. What are the chief dangers of of witchcraft in your pastoral opinion? Well, there are some serious ones. Uh, One is that we are uncritically, these people are uncritically dabbling in and exploring 
things that they cannot comprehend with their senses. So they are uh, pursuing a connection to unseen forces and not with a full understanding of what it is they're even trying to communicate with. So as Christians, we recognize, well, the only things that the Bible says in terms of entities that are beyond us in a supernatural sense are angels and demons, and that the people who have died are already in heaven. And so those who are really trying to communicate with the dead are likely, most likely, in fact, biblically speaking, are trying to communicate with the demons. And we know from the Bible, as well as just early church and church history and and anecdotes about it, and even modern day anecdotes about it, that nothing good comes from trying to speak to the demonic, that everything starts falling apart when we do that, whether we recognize that that's what we're doing or not, because their only goal is to destroy faith and to wage war against God's truth and against the idea that God would save humanity from its sins in Christ. And as long as they can divorce us from Jesus, that's all they care about. And so if this is a way in which they can do it is by enticing us into this idea that we can explore the unknown in some way that gives us power or advantage or an ability to see into the future or something like that, then they will be more than willing to try to help us down that road in some way that entices us. So on one hand, you have this danger in witchcraft that they're uncritically going into things that they don't understand where the devil and the demons are just sitting, lying in wait for them. But also then, uh, in connection to that, that idea that they can themselves find ways to unravel the secrets of the universe to take advantage of them for their own personal gain or for their own personal peace starts causing them to anchor themselves in something that still ultimately is anchored in them saving themselves. And now it's just in a supernatural way, but they're still trying to save themselves from their own brokenness, their own inadequacy, their own lack of control and power in the world. And in the end, they're only going to find futility there. What does Scripture have to say about witchcraft? Yeah, so getting on that idea of of God saying this is a bad idea, right? Leviticus 19 and 20 are really examples of God being pretty straightforward and pretty strong on on not doing this. It says things like, you shall just not interpret omens or tell fortunes, or you shall not tattoo yourselves or make cuts on the body for the dead. Don't turn to mediums or necromancers. Don't seek them out. Um, if you do, you make yourselves unclean. Don't throw your children into the fire for the sake of personal gain from the evil god Molech, from that demon. So, He speaks a lot about don't go into necromancy and don't go to these people, don't pursue these things, don't try to gain anything from the secret arts that supposedly are around you, because God is there to care for you. God's there to take care of you. And so God is very adamant against the idea of of us moving away from him to try to ascertain these things for ourselves or to seek out other, other entities by which we might gain some kind of favor. How are Christians to distinguish between the harmless and silly and the harmful and serious when it comes to witchcraft? Mm, That's a good question. I think the key there is really looking at the base of what is trying to be conveyed there. So like going back to Harry Potter, for example, the whole point of the magic in Harry Potter is to serve the purpose of the narrative, that ultimately it's an adventure story about a kid growing up 
who has to save the world from the evil guy, and he has to go get the MacGuffins to do it, right? And it just happens to be that spells are the way he goes about doing these things, right? And the way the world, the world's mechanics run. So that's one thing, and it makes for a good yarn. It's a different thing when you have people sitting around actually using spell books that have spells in them and creating rituals and trying to contact the dead and actually contacting demons even in in the stories and stuff. So this idea of fantasy that's devoid of the object religiosity helps us to see kind of the humor in it and see the fun in it. Um, and so, but we have to be discerning even there to make sure that the kind of influence there isn't opening up to, well, that's fun witchcraft. So I guess witchcraft is fun and then causing us an entry into it. And so even as parents, when our kids are reading Harry Potter, you want to just double check that they recognize what they're reading. Right. But distinguishing between these things is kind of in the motivation of what's going on there. So when I'm at the store at Christmas, and Parker Brothers has their Ouija board up on the Target shelf right next to Monopoly. How do I discern that that's not just fun? It's in the board game area. How is that different from the Magic 8-Ball over here? Well, the Magic 8-Ball is just me shaking a thing and looking at it and having fun because it says stupid things. Unless someone actually takes it seriously and says, well, this is really telling me something, and then we have a problem, right? But the Ouija board itself, the idea behind it is actually you're supposed to be using this in a way where you're contacting spirits, right? And that move to the unknown and to uncritically exploring that unknown over against what the Bible calls us to do, that starts moving into harmful and serious. And in fact, to the point where that's how uh, the real narrative behind the exorcist, right? That's how that child actually got into the situation they found themselves in was because they were playing with the spirit board that their aunt had left for them when she died. So that move into exploring the unknown apart from God and his word, trying to divine things or gain some kind of supernatural power for ourselves, even if it's just in a, in a narrative where the characters are doing this uncritically, those are the, some of the basic discernments we have to make. What is their foundation for what they're trying to say? Is it God and his word? Is it something that has good morals and integrity in align with God's word and his truth? Or is it something that's pulling on a different worldview of the supernatural that's going to ultimately lead us away from God and, and away from an understanding of relying on God for our life and our futures and that he has us in his hands instead of trying to take those reins for ourselves? We're discussing witchcraft with Dr. John Ferguson. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to Issues Etc. Happy birthday to the U.S. Navy Reserve. The USNR makes, marks its official beginning on this date in 1915. LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces supports all Lutheran Church Missouri Synod chaplains who serve in the reserves, active duty, the National Guard, Civil Air Patrol, and Coast Guard Auxiliary. Learn more about their service at lcms.org slash armed forces. LCMS Military... LCMS service to the armed forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. On the other side, do Christians need to be afraid of the practitioners of witchcraft?
listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. Save the date. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky, with visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Look for more information in early 2023 at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. Your Aunt Mabel's church banners are from the 60s. They were quite something in the day, especially the psychedelic bell-bottoms. But now the colours have faded, the tassels fell off years ago, and the hand-stitched letters are skew. Come on over to adcrucem.com and see our beautiful, theologically correct, Christ-focused church banners. We can customise size and colour to meet your church's requirements. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about witchcraft. Dr. John Ferguson is our guest. John, do Christians need to fear the practitioners of witchcraft? Well, not in the sense that maybe maybe we mean by that, in the sense of if they're going to uh, throw black magic on us or something. Not directly in this in that sense that we are the children of God, we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, and God is stronger than anything that they have, and we rely on God then to walk us through the challenges the world puts at us, whether it's concrete things of the world or whether it's differing worldviews and whether it's people that are into something like witchcraft that are trying to hex us into negative parts of our lives or something. We don't have to fear that because we have God who is greater than these things. But we want to be wary of those things being out there and not walk into them uncritically either, because a lot of times what goes with those things, especially when you look in, in other cultures, what goes with those things is, is not just the spell being given or something like that, but also an animosity toward the person on whom they're casting it or thinking it or manifesting it. And in that anger, right, we find a lot of other problems that can come our way in terms of just relational issues and violence and animosity. And so we need to be wary of those accompanying things as well, that it's not just that someone's doing this out of random chance. They're doing it because it's a directed attack on someone who believes things differently than them. And so we need to be take that kind of idea seriously. What does Christianity offer that those who are being drawn to witchcraft are looking for? Sure. In my experience, those that are looking to witchcraft are often looking for a few different things. One, they're looking for peace in a world that they feel they have a little control over. Two, they are looking for assuredness and hope for their future because they feel fearful and uncertain of it, and they're looking for a way to try to take some kind of control over how that future plays out. 
And third, they're looking for their own identity and how to something to anchor their identity in, in a world that has pulled all the identities away from us that we can grab onto. I mean, to the point where we have gender identity issues, even because we can't even rely on genetics at this point, supposedly, to give us any idea of our identity. So you have these people that are wandering and they're lost and they're fearful and they're hungry for meaning and they're hungry for direction. And witchcraft, when they run into it, says, hey, we can provide these things to you. We can give you this understanding of yourself within your life in nature and the cosmos. We can give you this hidden power to discern the future and to control your future through these hidden means. And that sounds very attractive to people who are lost, right? But what we have is something so much greater than that. You know, the certainty of Christ crucified and risen for us, the reality of our creator God that has made these things that they're worshiping. You know, they're worshiping the things and not the creator. They're trying to manipulate the things when they can just go to the Father through Christ and have the king of the universe hear their prayers and act on them. And the fact that though we can't control things, that God is in control of all things and will rectify all things in the end, right, gives us a hope and a peace that transcends anything the world can offer, even the hidden things of witchcraft. And also then in that hope, you know, in that peace, we have that joy, we have that sense of we recognize where we can control in our lives and the things that we can go over to God knowing that they're in his hands. So all the things that people tend to seek witchcraft over, we tend to have and do have greater answers because they're the only certain ones that we have, which are which is in Christ Jesus. Someone approaches you and says, Pastor, my daughter, she went off to college, came back, and now she tells us that she is a witch. She is practicing some of these, as you said, self-invented rites and rituals and ideas. What would you say to them? Well, I would say certainly that if she's interested in talking to me, I'd be happy to talk to her. But also just talking to the, the parents that in the conversation that they have with their daughter, try to help her see what it is that she thinks is lacking in her life that she needs to go to these resources. What is it that she is wanting that she thinks these things can provide for her? And then through approaching God's word, through loving her, through prayer, trying to discern how to speak to her toward those particular things and how Christ actually fulfills those things for her and that those things are unnecessary. And then also talk about the dangers of it, that pulling this stuff in, did you also realize that you're actually trying to communicate with with the demonic, that you are actually working yourself away from Christ? And how does that affect your understanding of, of who you are? So trying to help her understand how that affects her identity in Christ, trying to help her understand that the things she's looking for are already met for us in Christ. And then helping her recognize the the dangers of what she actually is looking toward for the things that she thinks she's lacking. Those are the three main areas that, that they would want to try to address with her if they can find a way to do so. Dr. John Ferguson is pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in St. Louis. He's author of the book, The Sword and the Mask, Building an Anti-Fragile Approach to Spiritual Warfare, and a recent column for the Lutheran Witness magazine titled On Witchcraft, a growing spiritual trend. You can purchase The Sword and the Mask at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. John, thanks. Oh, yeah. Always a pleasure, Todd.
In hour two of Issues Etc. and Issues Etc. Encore, a hymn that many of us will be singing this coming Sunday, Lord Thee I Love With All My Heart, the guest, the sainted Pastor Paul McCain. Stay tuned. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.